Hello everyone and welcome back to The War Room, which is our interview series as part of the Clone Star Pod. I am your host, Sean Ferrick, and joining me is producer, writer, director, all-around legend of Star Trek history, the wonderful David Livingston. How are you, sir? That's terrific, and uh, thank you for that intro. That was, uh, I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, look, you know, kind of, have you heard of this guy? This guy's a bit of a, he's he's kind of done it all. Um but I think the be- the most important thing we should discuss, of course, is your cameo in the Voyager episode, Non Sequitur. I had a cameo? According to Memory Alpha, um, you are seen in the reflection of a glass door. <laughs> and therefore, okay. that's as good as a cameo. That that may be the case. I'll, I'll have to go back and look at that. But boy, leave it up to the uh, fans to, to suss out that kind of stuff. I thought you were going to say I was on camera as Livingston the Fish from the Ready Room. Well, that is actually because obviously I was embarrassingly old when I when I realized that. I, when I say embarrassingly old, I was in my teens. Um, and then I was like Livingston. And, and then I, it was a, another embarrassing point before I put the two together because I, 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 I was a rebellious teen. You know, I wasn't doing the Star Trek study I should have been doing. And uh, yeah, it was just like, oh, that makes sense. So. Do, do, do you feel that this is so not a question I thought I was going to ask. Do you feel a lionfish completely represents you like as your symbol in Trek? Uh, the production designer Herman Zimmerman thought it did because lionfish ate live little goldfish. And I had a reputation at the time as the production manager of saying no to everybody, which is my job. You got to say no. Uh, otherwise, things run rampant and you go way over budget. So Herman uh, decided to uh, give me that uh, particular name or name the fish after me because I I ate little goldfish. I love that. That is beautifully terrifying. Uh, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I actually had a trading card uh, <laughs> of Livingston the fish. Um, Paramount would put out trading cards periodically and I had three trading cards. Uh, two were of my face and one was of the fish. And it, when I go to a convention, uh, the cards to sign are about 10 to one for the fish. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. It's well, it's your on screen character, of course. And he's a lot cuter than me, so. <laughs> and, and he survived the crash in Generations. That's impressive. Oh, he did. I didn't realize that. I forgot you, boy, you know, you know some, uh, you know some factoids, boy. That's very good. Uh, thank you for thinking it's very good. My parents are deeply concerned. Um, As they should be, but uh, <laughs> I'll cut you some slack. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what was I going to say? So I'm going to go back in time. So uh, I think that the best place to start is 1988, 87, 88. So you're, you were there from Encounter at Farpoint. Is that right? Yes. I was the production manager on the pilot in 1987. I started at Paramount in uh, late January, early February of 87, and we started shooting the pilot in July of 87. I have I have a question I have to ask you because I need to know, is there any truth to this? And as the production manager, you should be able to answer this question for me. Somewhere along the way, and I can't remember where, I read that Gene hurriedly included a scene in engineering otherwise they weren't going to build an engineering for the Enterprise D. Is that a nonsense story that has just, or is was that ever a, a modicum of truth? I, I don't know. 
that's, <laughs> that's a good that's a good story, but I I don't have any uh, any knowledge of it, okay. which would have been so, a shame. Oh, big I mean, time! Yeah. So so by the time everything so by the time things land on your desk, is it like is it very much a case of I need the following, make it happen? Yes. Uh, the production manager is a below the line position uh, where you prepare the budget, hire the crew and, and, uh, and make, make all the necessary approvals for spending money. Uh, so basically uh, I get uh, set designs. Uh, the art department would uh, do a budget and then it would cross my desk to, uh, to, to give approval based upon what we had in the budget. So yes, it's all sort of laid at my footsteps uh, to be able to, uh, to then approve the money. How quickly then into, so, you know, this is obviously, it's a new job for everyone because Star Trek is only on TV starting up again. So how, how quickly did you kind of earn the reputation of, oh, David's gonna say no, David's gonna say no. It, it comes with the territory as a production manager, but I have to say that my previous reputation as a production manager was more producer uh, and show oriented rather than studio oriented. Uh, I used to work at Universal, which was a factory, and I would be regularly reprimanded for uh, siding with the producers to be able to give them everything that they were entitled to. Uh, a lot of times studios will uh, say no, just to say no, to see if the producers will not end up spending the money. Uh, it's a little game, <clears throat> excuse me. But my reputation was to, to facilitate the production. And ultimately, I think that's what uh, Rick Berman and, and uh, Bob Justman respected about me as a production manager, that I was on their side. I understand that as well, because I can imagine in any production, um, you know, every, you have to find a way of keeping the cost down because every year I'm sure there's going to be the uh, negotiation of, well, you know, we'd like to do another season, but we'd probably spend less money building a new Dubai if we just do everything we want to do. Um, every single season uh, that I would do a new pattern budget, for the, for the next season, either as a production manager, a producer, line producer, whatever, Paramount always gave us the money that we asked for. And we always asked for more money because Paramount knew they had the golden egg and they weren't gonna mess with us. Working on Star Trek, I've never worked on a show where I felt more like an independent production while actually working at a studio because they knew that we were going to spend the money responsibly and they knew they couldn't mess with us. And they knew that we had to keep the production uh, uh, level up in order to compete. So uh, it was really a uh, rarefied and idealized kind of situation that's, that for me was unique in the business. That's it. That is fascinating. And actually, it's the way that you described that, um, because I know obviously you worked across all of them up right up until the end of Enterprise. Um, so it, a, lo a lot of the times Deep Space Nine will be described as almost the indie film version of the then current Star Trek series. But it sounds like, I mean, from next, like Star Trek itself 
was the indie film um, property of Paramount at the time. Oh, absolutely. The Next Generation uh, introduced a new uh, uh, cohort of, of uh, programming. It was a syndicated hour drama. That had not happened before on the level that, that The Next Generation did. So it, there was no studio involvement. We didn't get studio notes because there was no studio. So essentially, we were an independent production. And that was sort of the, the magic of it. And, and Paramount said, okay, we're gonna try this new formula. We're gonna have, uh, we're gonna try and syndicate our uh, episodic. And they knew they had to support us financially and, and they did. Um, so. And yeah, it, it works as well. I would it, be. It, it, I, it worked extraordinarily well in our final season on The Next Generation. The show was nominated for the Emmy for the uh, best uh, our dramatic show. It, it didn't it didn't win, but that was a pretty extraordinary accomplishment because at that time, uh, the three networks still held held sway, and to have an interloper like a an hour science fiction syndicated show enter into that contest that was that was pretty extraordinary and and reflects on the quality of the programming and the show itself. Well, that's actually, that's interesting because now, if you ask anyone, you know, you know, what are the best sci-fi shows of arguably the 20th century, but of particularly of the 90s, Next Gen, I would argue, would probably be at the top of that list. Uh, yeah, I, I, ha I have no doubt that would be my opinion as well. So sometimes, you know, seeing the wood for trees, did you know that while making it? You know, did you, obviously I'm sure you knew that there was good quality here, but did you know that it was gonna be like, no, this is gonna be a success? No, um, I came into Star Trek not knowing anything about it. Uh, I grew up uh, in the sixties. Uh, I watched Man From Uncle, not, not Star Trek. Um, so it was all new to me. I knew about uh, this guy that had funny ears and he was called a Vulcan and and uh, I was kind of a friend, of, uh, a fan of William Shatner uh, because I'd followed his television career, especially on the Twilight Zone when he does the episode on the uh, plane where he sees the gremlin out on the wing. And um, that always impressed me of uh, that particular episode and his performance in it. Um, but I, when you're in the middle of these kinds of things, you have no idea how the audience is going to respond or what what history is going to show because you're too busy just doing the show. Uh, so I was continually flabbergasted by the response of all four series that I worked on. But when you're in the middle of it, it's it's simply another television show and you're just trying to slog your way through and and do the best you can. I, I is it like because I presume deadlines, uh, deadlines rule supreme, you know, you have to get episodes out. I presume, actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but I presume you were still filming, let's say, the latter half of the season when the first one goes to air. Did Was that happen? Because there's so many episodes. It was 26 episodes a season. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're airing uh, before before the season's over. So we we had a pretty good idea that we were getting some good response in the year, first year of the ne uh, next generation. Uh, but there were more dynamics going on in terms of the writer's room because the show really hadn't found its voice yet. And we were getting scripts late, uh, which 
ended up costing more money, uh, uh, last minute changes. It was, it was sort of a, a bit of a chaotic situation that first season, but that's, that's emblematic of, of new shows anyway. But when you have a show where everything has to physically be created out of whole cloth and invented uh, uh, newly each week, that's a big challenge. Um, we just couldn't go to a, a you know downtown LA and shoot out on the street because that's not outer space. And the sets, you know, you couldn't shoot in somebody's living room in uh, in Hollywood and and sell that because that's not what a a, a science fiction uh, living room looks like. Uh, so, not having the scripts uh, early enough and and not knowing what all the physical elements were. Uh, created some real issues that that first season and a real challenge. So again, we were just trying to fight our way through that, not realizing how the shows were going to end up or how they were going to turn out. We just wanted to get through it. I can I can well imagine. You know, someone comes in, you're shooting episode, you know, eighteen or nineteen. Someone comes in with you know a glowing review of the first half of the season. And you're like, do you think I have time for that? Somebody go and, you know, somebody go and get me this and I have to find, you know, get $10,000 out of someone's back pocket to make this happen. Um, and it is, and it's, you know, I presume then, you know, once, actually, maybe I shouldn't presume. How how soon into season one did you know there was going to be a season two? Like, how, were you gearing up for that? Pretty early. Uh, okay. Paramount had really made a commitment to keep going. Uh, they, uh, they didn't invest all this money to have a one and off. One and off. We spent a lot of money uh, building those sets uh, mm -hmm. and we had to amortize those costs, not in the first season, but to spread them over many seasons so that uh, the budget didn't get busted the first year. And by amortizing those costs, uh, you knew that the studio was making commitment because they weren't writing off everything immediately. So it was pretty apparent that we were going to to go more than more than one season. That's good because there must there must be a sense of security in that as well. Um, one thing we keep hearing about is, you know, every now and again you could do a show, the year would come to an end, everyone would shake hands, and it would be hitting the pavement looking for work again. Yeah, that wasn't the case on the show. I think everybody involved uh, knew that this had the this this was going to go. Uh, that Paramount had made a commitment, unless unless it just hit the skids, um, and and it didn't. I mean, we had this phenomenal cast, we had uh, great visual elements, and it was Star Trek. It we we inherited a built-in audience. If this had been a, a new concept and stuff. Uh, that would have been a lot harder hill to climb, but look, look what <laughs> we, are, we there were features already that had been done. The name Star Trek was universally known, um, so that was that was built in, and Paramount knew that and they exploited it. So there was never really any fear uh, that the show would not continue on. Well, that is obviously. I'm saying this in 2022 saying I'm delighted to hear that but it, like I'm it is fantastic news because you love to hear that obviously your favorite properties there's there's all that confidence from the start um 
because I know I think I'm pretty sure the original series didn't have that you know that sense of we're gonna do well it's like I really hope we do <laughs> oh it got canceled after the second season and and again you were dealing with a network they didn't know what they had but the audience knew what they had and the audience responded to something they responded to Gene's vision Gene had a view that humanity is going to come out on the positive side. And that's ultimately, that's what all of this is about, that this was a man who had a singular vision about humanity, that we're, that we're okay, and that we're going to do good. And people, people latch onto that. That's why the conventions, you were at the convention this year, yeah. so was I, where people, it, it's a sacred place. It's, it's almost spiritual. People come dressed as uh, in the costumes and they, and, and they take on the identities of all this and they talk and, and we have all these panels about, we have a thing called trectivism where uh, uh, we, we give back to the community reflecting the values uh, that Star Trek has imbued. Um, so that's what it's all about. And that's what the audience latched on to. And, and that's, why, that's why we're here talking about it 60 years later. That, and, and how many umpteenth television shows and feature films have been have been created over this. That is, I don't think any other television or motion picture uh, franchise has quite uh, captured that in in terms of all media. Star Wars, yeah, maybe comes close, but um, Star Trek certainly gives it a run for its money. For sure, for sure. Um, I think as well, the next generation um, is probably, I'd say. The, the pinnacle of that utopian future of that that vision of that like basically the we're gonna be okay version of the future and obviously it, it, we had the Borg and the Cardassians and everything but one of the things that Next Generation is obviously so famed for is you know Picard's speeches where he'll just talk us out of any you know situation which is wonderful I mean, I'm not sure if you see there's like compilation videos on YouTube of just his speeches and they're really inspiring like if you feel down or something just stick on one of them um, and that's a wonderful thing about the next generation. Um, and actually, one thing I, I particularly wanted to say as well, which is related and all, but you mentioned as well about, you know, there was, to quote the name of the documentary, there was chaos on the bridge. I know the writer's room, there was an awful lot going on those first two years. But one thing that the next generation did from episode one is it looked expensive. Like it looked like there was investment in this show. Yeah, we didn't. Uh, even though I said no a lot, uh, we put the money up on the on the screen. Uh, when I came in in uh, early '87, I was blown away by the set designs and and the construction that was going on. Uh, it, it was it was no different than a major major feature film. Uh, we filled up three sound stages with sets. We had seen. Uh, I think we were on five, six, and sixteen, and then we. Ch changed over to eight, nine, and 16 of Paramount. I don't remember the particular stage numbers, but we filled up three sound stages. And then we'd have to have a swing stage sometimes where we'd have to build additional sets. So at times on the next generation, we might have four sound stages going. Uh, that's major feature time. That's, it, these, are, these are weekly movies. Even the smaller episodes are, because again of the effects that go into it as well we had industrial light and magic obviously did encounter farpoint because you know all those 
beautiful, <laughs> beautiful shots of the, the Enterprise D, which I think is many people's favourite Enterprise. I won't speak for everyone, but it's many people's favourite Enterprise because we got to see it so often. That was another thing. Yeah, no, uh, ILM did a great job. And uh, uh, yeah, it is it is a beautiful uh, it is a beautiful ship. But Rob Legato, uh, who was uh, the visual effects coordinator and went on to win several Academy Awards and, uh, with Mr. Cameron, uh, he, he referred to the uh, Enterprise as simply plastic on a stick, which I thought was very irreverent, very irreverent. Now, the plastic's gone and the stick is gone and it's all zeros and ones, but uh, it still looks pretty good. Uh, it does, actually. It does, because we, um, we had a cameo from the Enterprise D there in the opening episode of Picard, and she scrubs up nice. Yes. I'll say that. Yeah. Um, so in the show's fourth year, you make the leap from production to direction uh, with the mind's eye. Um, <coughs> how does that... So do you then find yourself backing yourself going like, oh, I want to do more in this scene, but I have to run it by the production manager and he's going to say no. And I know he will because it's me. There are two different jobs. At that point, I was uh, a producer on the show. And you wear two hats and you can't wear them at the same time. When you're directing, you have to be honest and committed to the role of director. And forget about producing, forget about budgets, whatever. Your job is to deliver the scene and the emotional content of it. It's to deliver the show and to make it as compelling visually and dramatically and emotionally as possible. So forget about it. And that got me into a lot of trouble because um, I had a certain reputation for uh, being a, a, a bulldog and not, and not letting go. Uh, but I felt that was my job. Uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta pick your poison. Yeah, fair, fair to say. Um, I mean, the Mind's Eye, it's an episode that stands out because we get, you know, Romulans, Klingons, Starfleet, we get a, a Geordie story, which is always nice, um, because I look back and it feels like there wasn't enough Geordie, but there was a good few episodes, but Mind's Eye is, is good. He did get deprogrammed, right? We like Because it's never really shown on the screen. He did get deprogrammed. I mean, Geordie's not like in season three of Picard, he's not about to pull out a Romulan disruptor or something, is he? I would think so, but I saw LeVar recently and he was acting a little weird, so maybe something is going on there still. Okay. All right. I, My, uh... I was thrilled to get that episode because I got to do, I, I figured because of Geordie Vision, I could do all these weird things with the camera. And uh, Rick wasn't always, uh, Rick Berman wasn't always pleased with what I was doing with the camera, but I felt I needed to in, infuse that vision with a kind of uh, weirdness and stuff. And also, I got to do an homage to, to one of my favorite movies, uh, Manchurian Candidate, uh, where Jordy has to assassinate somebody and uh, he, he has to shoot somebody in a chair in 10 forward. And it was the same. And, and that's the same thing that happens in uh, the Manchurian Candidate where a guy's in a chair and he gets shot. Nobody else knows that, but I do. Uh, but uh, that was my cheesy homage to one of my favorite movies. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's brilliant. Also, because that is absolutely a trivia question I'm going to ask somebody in the future, and they're not going to know the answer, and I'm going to know now. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, but, uh, but, 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 David, what did you have against poor old Colin Meany? I, 
why do you say that? I, I well, he's the one Georgie shoots. Oh, is that who it was? I, I <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, John Fleck, isn't John, John Fleck tells him to go over and shoot him. You're right. So, thank you. Well, I'm having a senior eye, a senior moment there for me. Yeah, poor Colum. I love Colum. He's a, uh, he's a uh, member of your uh, community. He is indeed. He is indeed. an Irishman. I you haven't yet. I haven't had the pleasure. Um, we're 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 hopefully going to get him on the pod at some point. Uh, a shiver has just run down his spine now that I've said that. But um, uh, because oh, he's gas, he's gas. What a, what a wonderful actor! And I'm so glad that uh, uh, we got him onto uh, Deep Space Nine. It's just he's he's terrific. I lo- I don't because I, I'm sure he, I'm sure you know the 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 trouble. O'Brien must suffer. Um, that that took over on Deep Space Nine. Is it? Did you start this in the mind's eye by having him shot? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think that's that's too, too big a connection to make. <laughs> um, so it is. It's toward the end of Next Gen's fifth season that DS Nine is starting to pick up. So were you? Did you end up double jobbing between the two? For because obviously, I mean, your list of directing credits is just you know, as long as my arm at this stage. And, and also, of course, um, you you wrote for the first season of Deep Space Nine as well, the episode, The, the Nagus. Um, I, so... wrote, I wrote a story idea and Ira Bear, the executive producer, gave me, gave me credit. So I'm not really a writer, but he graciously, uh, they bought my story and, and I got a, a writing credit on it. So Yes, that's that's true. But but I did work on both the Next Generation and uh, uh, Deep Space Nine uh, a, as a producer. And um, Rick had me mainly uh, work, uh, concentrating on on Deep Space Nine because that was his baby and it was the new show, and he wanted me to kind of uh, shepherd it through from a production standpoint. But uh, we were all pulling double duty at that point. Uh, it was a really really heady time. You talk about the number of sound stages we had. We had six sound stages going, and sometimes even more if we had. I would think even more. Um, so we it was basically the Star Trek lot at that point, not the uh, not the Paramount lot. Um, it, like because you have you basically built the Alpha Quadrant sitting in L.A. at this point. Um, which sounds great in theory, but I'm sure there's so much running around, or even if not physical running around, then certainly mental running around. You're juggling two shows and two major shows as well. Yeah, and and the Deep Space Nine pilot was a, a huge challenge. It was, uh, we went over budget, we went over schedule. It was very, very tough shooting, uh, but pulled it off. Uh, and And again, kudos to the, the production staff and and all the artists and stuff that that contributed towards it. Uh, it, it you, you look back on it now and you wonder how the heck did we did did we pull that off? Because it, it was it was pretty extraordinary. Just doing the D Space Nine pilot alone was a big deal, but to do that in concert with the Next Generation running as well, uh, that was it was pretty crazy time. I would imagine so as well because. Again, even with Next Generation being as established as it was by by that time, um, 
there are some shows out there that they get to their later seasons and you know for whatever reason quality dips or people come and people go you don't get that with the next generation despite the fact that you have this challenge of ds9 running concurrently the show ran from a production standpoint on automatic because we were so far into our our run and you talked about some shows uh losing their mojo and jumping the shark eventually the next generation only got better every year. And that's, that's proving how the not, uh, Emmy nomination came through in the seventh season. Every year, I think, dramatically, and in terms of production value and everything else, the writing, uh, it got better. And that's why, in a way, it was a shame that uh, Paramount decided that they were not going to permit an eighth season because they wanted to go into feature development, uh, feature production on the next generation. Because the cast was willing to do an eighth season. They would have had to pay him, but they were all willing to sign on. Uh, and that would have been the only impediment to doing an eighth season. But Paramount said, no, we're going to, in a, in a studio, the, the feature division holds sway over television, especially when it's a conflict between the same production. So uh, no eighth season. That is it. I actually have to say for my factoids and everything, I didn't know that. I knew, obviously, it moves into uh, feature films. I didn't realize that there had even been a question of an eighth series. Oh, um, no, ab absolutely. But uh, all, what was it called? All Things Must Pass? Uh, what was the name of the last? Uh, all Good Things. All Good Things, yeah. Um, we knew that was going to be the case. But that didn't happen until a little bit into the, into the seventh season when it became apparent that we weren't going to be permitted to have an eighth season, but it was certainly under discussion. And again, cast is willing to do it. That's my understanding. I suppose. Well, and, and in fairness, evidence being, should they're all in all of the films? So yeah, well, <laughs> you don't turn down a feature ro film role either. <laughs> that was I mean, kind of for them. But in fact, it's easier to commit to a feature film than it is to commit to 26 episodes more of a television show that you've been doing for seven years. So it just shows how much of a community and how valued the actors thought of the show to be willing to commit another year of their life to 26 weeks of doing episodic television because episodic television is not easy, especially for the actors, especially when you're working 12 and 14 hours a day. It's, it's not easy. And it, it just shows the value that they, that they put in the show that they're willing to go another year. Well, that is, uh, it, it's sort of like, if, if you're ever looking for an example of um, camaraderie as well, um, there, there it is. And, and also, of course, jumping forward 30 odd years, they're all back for uh, season three of Star Trek Picard, you know, to a person, um, which is, which is a bit incredible um, when you think there's been that amount of time has gone between. Um, now, you always hear about, uh, and in, which is lovely, you always hear about how, you know, how much of a family they were on the set of The Next Generation and behind the scenes. And in recent years, uh, it doesn't seem to have been spoken about as much, but you start to say that, yes, it was exactly the same on Deep Space Nine, just quite different, like as in, I think it was, someone described it once as being slightly more formal. Would that be, did, would, would that have been your experience at all? There were close friendships developed among the cast on Deep Space Nine, 
Um, uh, I don't know if I should get into the specifics about no, no, no. You know, course, friends yeah. with who, but uh, it was a dysfunctional family on D Space Nine dramatically. And I would say it was somewhat of a dysfunctional family as well in terms of the actor community. Well, not that that's not even quite true. They 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 were all they they were all buds. Mm. They they really were. Um, in fact, all of the shows, uh, with with some some uh, exam some minor examples, um, the actors all pretty much bonded on all the four shows that I worked on. Uh, I think it's the nature of episodic television to begin with, because you're you're forced together with these people, and you're you're spending more time with those people than you are with your own family. So uh, there's going to be conflicts and stuff like that. But ultimately, if you're going to get through it, you gotta you gotta communicate and have a relationship with your fellow actors. And it's the same way with the production staff. You have to get along with the production staff, uh, otherwise it can be really nasty. Oh God, I would well imagine. Um, I would well imagine. And obviously- well, I've, I've worked on television shows where the actors haven't gotten along and when there's been conflicts and and it isn't it isn't fun. Like who, how are we gonna get that person out of their trailer because the other person doesn't wanna come out first? Um, you know, th those kinds of dynamics. And uh, we never, we never had that. Uh, we had consummate professionals always and we had leaders. Uh, Patrick Stewart was always the first one on the set. Kate Mulgrew was always the first one on the set. Avery Brooks was, was he should have been captain to begin with. He was mm -hmm. Captain Cisco. He was a, a leader. And Scott Bakula, no question about it. So they all assumed that leadership role and everybody fell into line behind that as, as actors, not just as their characters, but as actors, respecting that they were being led by someone who said, hey guys, Let's hit our marks and get our lines. It's funny well, because as as viewers, I think there is an assumption that that is always the case. Um, and I'm sure there are some shows out there where what we see is not reflected, but behind the scenes. But that, but not in Star Trek. You know, in Star Trek, everyone just not in Star Trek. Uh, again, we were blessed with these four uh, consummate actors who took on a leadership role and made it clear that they expected our better natures to show up every day. I mean, like that's, I think that is a, a fair expectation. I, I, I know there's days I've turned up to work now and if I haven't got a coffee in me, don't come near me. Um, it's not personal. It's not anything else. It just, and not that I'm going to be rude. I'm just going to be, just going to be blunt. That's, that's all it's going to be. Um, and then there's some days I've done that and someone has very much said, Hey Sean, yeah, go away. Okay. Yeah. No problem. Um, but particularly, I wanted to ask about um, working. Uh, there's so many examples I want to talk about, but particularly I want to talk about The Visitor um, on Deep Space Nine, uh, because selfishly, The Visitor is my favorite episode of Star Trek overall. Um, so you're working, you're directing Avery Brooks and you're directing Tony Todd, who is one of my favorite actors. Um, what what is the challenge of that when you have say someone like Tony who's playing a familiar character, but of course he is relatively new to the audience. We'd seen him as Kern, but he was he was new out of Klingon makeup. Um, did you know 
that this smaller episode that was saving money after Way of the Warrior was going to end up becoming such a beloved episode in all of Star Trek? Uh, I had quit as a producer and went freelance as a director uh, on the season that I did uh, The Visitor. And when I got the script, I was horrified because I had no idea what to do with it. I I went to the uh, Steve Oster who had replaced me as the as a supervising producer on D Space Nine, and I said, Steve, I, I don't know what to do with this. I I, I, have, I don't have a clue. And he says, Go home and read the script again, because he said he knew what what it was about. So I went home, and I read the script again, and I looked over at my son who was, I guess, 10 at the time. I can't remember exactly, but he was a kid. And I looked at him and I said, okay, I get it. I get it. Because the, the emotion of it didn't hit me until I looked at my kid and, and it all just flooded over me. And it was, it was a revelation. And I said, okay, uh, yeah, yeah, let's, let's do this. Um, so, uh, but the challenge was, because I tend to micromanage when I direct, my challenge on that show was simply to get out of the way and let the actors act. Ira Bear said to me, uh, David, are you gonna rehearse? And I said, rehearse ahead of the episode? I said, rehearse ahead of the episode? You don't rehearse ahead of an episode on, on episodic. You just go in and shoot. You get on the set, and everybody knows their lines and you shoot. He says, no, you should think about rehearsing. So I, um, I asked uh, um, Tony Todd and Rachel Robinson, Andy Robinson's daughter, to come over to my house. And we rehearsed uh, in front of my fireplace, uh, all of the scenes between the two of them. And thank you, Ira, for that note, because when we hit the stage, it was already there. We didn't have to spend the time finding everything because the actors <laughs> had already found it. And I had found out that I didn't have to do anything glitzy with the camera. All I had to do was point the camera at him and shoot. Um, so that that was a godsend. And uh, what marvelous, wonderful performances. Uh, again, a great piece of writing from Michael Taylor. And one of the unsung heroes for the episode is Renee Echeviera, because Renee, who was a staff writer, did the rewrite. And he put a lot of the heart into the episode. Um, and Michael Taylor will, will recognize, will, will acknowledge uh, Renee's contribution to bringing that heart into it. And I've talked to Renee about it and thanked him for doing that. So a lot of people tell me that The Visitor is their favorite episode. I am grateful that I got to direct it, but it was in the writing and the actors and all I did was watch. <laughs> so and and not and not get in the way um i think you're selling oh, yourself oh, a little oh, short oh, there well oh yeah but but also i did get reprimanded by rick berman on the episode so yeah yeah he what? called me he called me in his office david i want to talk to you calls me in his office and he closes the door and he said david i got to tell you something about the visitor you made my wife cry <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh, but that's very funny. <laughs> I... That was that was Rick's that was Rick's way of uh, of of his backhanded compliments. That that was the Rick Berman method. 
gotcha. It's like, you know, I'm not going to say to you, good job. I'm going to say, look what you did, which is indicative of doing a good job. Uh, yes, yes. Um, I, it, 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 it's, it's funny. It's an episode and that I've spoken to uh, two other or friends with. We, would, we tend to use that as an introduction episode to Star Trek. For someone who's never seen Star Trek before, it's a very good jumping off point because it's, it's got not, your sci-fi. It's not Star Trek. It's not Star Trek. It's a story about love, love of a father. It's about a, a father and son relationship. The, the science fiction stuff, it's irrelevant. It's only there because it says Star Trek Deep Space Nine at the beginning of it. it and that's the magic of it. It's, it's not about anything except a relationship between a father and a son and how the son is going to make the ultimate sacrifice. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, Ex exactly. I think you're talking about. And when you say it's introduction to, to Star Trek, that, that's, that's wild because it doesn't have space battles. It doesn't have ships zooming all around. It, it doesn't have, you know, people in goofy makeup and stuff. Uh, yeah. That, that's that's the magic of the writing and of the episode and, and of the performances. Although I did add one element that I will take credit for. Oh, yeah. At the beginning of the episode, it doesn't me mention what the environment is like when Rachel Robinson comes in. And I said, well, this is a story about a dark and stormy night. So we should have a dark and stormy night. So I had them put rain outside, uh, outside, the, outside the set. Uh, much to the chagrin and consternation of the effects people, because they had to visqueen the whole stage floor. Otherwise, it would have uh, gotten everything wet and warped the floor. But I thought her coming in looked like a, a drowned rat was was good because she needed taken care of, and mm -hmm. and that that was a a nice introduction to her character and allowed Tony, who is so nurturing, to to welcome her in. Because she was an interloper, she, you know, she had no business showing up there. And and if she had just shown up cold, I don't know dramatically if if you would have accepted it as much as if you just let her in. Exactly. There's that idea of you know, well, it's dark and stormy night. Um, he, you, he was never going to answer the door and be like, yeah, no, it doesn't suit. Bye. Yeah. You know. Oh, okay. <laughs> she, had, she had to be vulnerable. And she she played vulnerability really I thought really really well and very and very sim simpatico and sympathetic. Um, and it 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 works obviously you know a credit to to everyone involved. I mean that that final scene between the two of them. Um, I'd love to imagine that there wasn't a dry eye on set because there's never a dry eye watching it. But again, I'm I'm sure there's kind of like. I mean, you know, X amount of takes. Oh, go on. Did they do it in one take? Dave? Tell me they did it in one take. Um, I, don't, I don't remember. All I remember was pushing the camera in so tightly on them that I was concerned about getting in their way. But I had the feeling that I had to get inside the scene, inside their heads. And you can't do it with a, a long lens from away because that compresses everything. You had to have a wide angle lens in tight so that their faces took over the took over the screen. And that scene is my my proudest moment of directing uh, because I thought the camera really uh, uh, told the story and and accentuated the story. 
that that kind of intimacy uh, was was paramount at that point. Um, and it is. It will always be. Um, it, I think it's 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 always going to be held up as one of the great scenes. And again, you're you're dead right. There's there's no ships. There's no phasers or anything going on. And yet, it is one of the great scenes of Star Trek overall. Yeah, I I hadn't seen it in what twenty years. And I watched it because I was doing another podcast where uh, um, uh, the Trek geeks, do you know them? Trek geeks. I do indeed. Yep. Yeah. They, uh, their favorite episode, at least one of the guys is, is also the visitor. Um, and, and so they were, uh, they were talking to me about it. I, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. Um, just the fact that 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 final scene, great, one of the great scenes in all of Star Trek. There's no ships flying around. There's no phasers or transporters. It's just two characters we yeah. love, and and as you say, they they fill the screen because it's not that that doesn't happen a lot. It it does happen a lot, but it it really packs an emotional punch in that scene. And and Tony Todd was just absolutely amazing. Um, we, we couldn't figure out who to cast. We even uh, auditioned uh, Ciroc, but Ciroc mm. was a kid. He, couldn't, he, he didn't have the chops to be able to pull it off at that point. And it would have been, it would have been weird with the makeup and all that. And Ron Surma, who was Judy Lowry's casting associate, uh, I, I remember standing out in front of the casting office and commiser uh, you know, telling him, we got to get some, who are we going to get to play this part? I mean, look at this part. And he said, how about Tony Todd? And I didn't know Tony's work. Uh, I had not seen Candyman or, uh, or his other work. And I said, okay, if that's who you recommend. So again, thank you to Tony or to, to Ron for, for suggesting him. My only challenge with Tony was I, I had to tell him, Tony, you can't cry on every take. You've got to <laughs> hold something back. He was so emotionally invested. And I, I don't know how he went home at night and, and could go to sleep. And he, he told me, years later how emotionally draining it was and how really tough it was and he didn't bring that to the set but he I think he was tormented by it I mean he was so he was so invested in that work and he and I today are, are friends uh, and he is we are both so grateful to one another to be, be have been able to do that work because I mean, I don't, I don't know. Again, it was it was a science fiction show, so it's going to be tough to get an Emmy nomination. But man, if you're going to give out awards for performances, T Tony was sure deserving of something. I couldn't agree more. Um, he always he. Uh, I mean, I I really enjoy him as Kern. Um, and I'll ask about Sons of Moog now in a second. But but the visitor, it's just this special moment. Um, you know, if generally if you're if you're standing with the right group of people and you say the words old jake you will start to see lips beginning to to, to kind of like quiver um yeah. because we all just think of that and it is it's it's incredible i'd seen an interview with tony before where he talked about getting into that headspace and i i can only imagine just the break you would need to have after completing that emotionally uh, yeah. probably the nature of the business probably not getting a break but my god yeah, no, it, it had to be extraordinary. And I, I remember the stuff where I, uh, the, the thing I was going to say earlier, um, I hadn't seen the show in about 20 years and I watched it and I actually had, I teared up at the end because it what 
I was not part of it anymore. I was so detached from it that I could look at it uh, as, as a viewer and not as somebody who participated in it. When I first saw it, after I finished it, I didn't have the kind of emotional response that I had years later, which was really kind of a wonderful experience because now I can now relate to how other people have told me they relate to it. Um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a pretty powerful piece of television. But again, it all starts with the word. In episodic television, it's a writer's medium and I'm the first one to recognize it, even though I got to direct a lot of episodes and, and directors get a lot of you know, uh, uh, kudos and stuff. It's, it's all about the writing. And that's why showrunners and television are writers. Um, and I have great respect for all of the writers on Star Trek, but especially uh, what, what Michael Taylor and Rene Echeviera did. Um, it's in, it's incredible the collaboration that obviously goes on between everyone. I I do I do agree because you can there are some you know some shows across things like they will look amazing, but the story won't be engaging for whatever reason. Um, whether it's maybe a character isn't working or there's something about a thread. Um, so uh, it it, it kind of goes back to that old saying, isn't it? Is that uh, a good script can save a bad actor but a great actor can't save a good script or can't save a bad script. Again, it all starts with the word. You know, look at the Bible. <laughs> it says the same thing. It, 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 it's right there. It's the opening sentence. Of, yeah, um, you're dead right. Um, just so there's actually, I'm going to go back in time slightly because um, as I was running through your list of credits and my apology, I actually didn't know this one until this evening, was that, of course, you directed In the Hands of the Prophets, which gave us the great, the late, great Louise Fletcher, uh, who was just, I only actually watched this uh, last week. I watched the episode again. Um, it's an odd season finale in that it doesn't feel like a season finale. There's no great cliffhanger ending. There's no, you know, the, the ship's not exploding or anything like that. It's just a very tight, self-contained story. And one of the great villainous performances. Um, so if you don't mind, how, how was that? Were you involved in, I presume you were involved in the casting process as well for that episode? I don't remember how Louise came into the picture, but I was so intimidated to work with her. I mean, this is an Academy Award-winning actress, and in one of my, I'm getting a chill talking about her, um, in one of my favorite, again, one, one of my favorite films, and talk about typecasting. I mean, she's Nurse Ratchet. Yeah. I mean, that's it. Kai Wynn, or what was her name? Kai, Kai Wynn, yeah. Kai Wynn. She, she's Nurse Ratchet. There's no difference. She, she came in and just played that character. And boy, was her ability to underplay stuff and infuse it with all of this stuff is so amazing. Her histrionics are not part of her jargon. She doesn't need to do any of that. All she has to do is talk. It is so extraordinary what she does and did as an actress, and and what a great loss uh, to all of us. Um, you okay? Yeah. yeah, my uh, my my screen was about to switch off. It's a whole thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but but what a, a thrill uh, to work with her. It was, and again, total intimidation. I mean, what do you say to somebody? I mean, what do you what do I say to any actor to begin with? But 
then to to direct her, uh, pretty crazy. Oh, I, 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 I can just. Uh, I love. I, I would imagine so because, like the 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 under like you said it best here, the understated power that she brought across. I mean, I'd say the smile dips by maybe two teeth for the whole episode, and yet there are some pretty horrific plans going on in the background. And even you're kind of like, oh my, oh my God, she's going to get away with this. She's going to get away with this. Um, yeah. And it's so tense. It's it's really a kind of a political thriller of an episode, really. Yeah, I I, I love strong women characters who are like that. Again, uh, hearkening back uh, to Manchurian Candidate, she's the Angela Lansbury character again. You know, underplaying it but pulling all the strings. And to me, strong women are the most fascinating characters because we don't see them enough. And we don't realize that they really are the power behind the world. And they, and if they're not, they should be. And she proved that, that she was. Uh, so again, um, a great loss. And But I had a, a privilege to be able to work with her. Um, it was to help, actually, and you mentioned, of course, strong female characters. In the same episode alone, we had, of course, Louise Fletcher, uh, some fantastic acting, as usual, by Nana Visitor. Um, but also, Rosalind Chow, Keiko, is excellent in this episode because she was a character who, you know, she was spoken about more than she appeared. And then she's up front and center in this episode because, of course, it's, the school is getting bombed and everything. It's, it's just a fantastic example for some guest stars as well as our main players of course with philip anglum as well i think believe this is his first episode again barile um i think so yeah you're just here introducing all of these massive characters to star trek thank you appreciate it well we we brought in the the guest casts were always um enriched by the writers like you say for rosalind and and andy robinson's character he be, basically became a a series regular um and that was wonderful what Ira and the rest of the writer staff did on Deep Space Nine was a, a guest star came in and they it wasn't just pro forma. They were actually given uh, given something to play. And, and that that was really marvelous. And you mentioned Nana. I'm a huge Nana Visitor fan. And when she played the intendant on the other side uh, of Deep Space Nine, talk about strong William women characters. I mean, she scared me when I was directing her as the intendant. You know, because she was so powerful. Um, yeah, so good for the ladies. Absolutely. More power, it's, it's, more power it's, to them. Absolutely. And you know, it's almost unsettling how when we see the intended on screen, I'm just like, oh yeah, I completely believe she would kill any person in this room. And this is Major Kira. We love Major She's a good person. The intendant would absolutely kill us all in a heartbeat. No question about it. Hey, you know, it's... She's got to do what she's got. A girl's got to do what she's got to do. <laughs> and, and, and she did it well. Um, now, to kind of go back, to, to, well, to go forward, sorry, I keep saying to go back, to go forward, but Tony Todd again. So a couple of episodes after The Visitor, Tony returns and we have Kern again. So this, so this is actually now Kern's last appearance in Star Trek. How different now is this for you having directed him breaking all of our hearts as old Jake. And now he's powerful Klingon again. So you're telling me I directed Tony afterwards as Kern? Did Indeed, I do yeah. Sons what of Moog, yeah. Oh my God, I had no recollection. I only think of Tony sitting in front of the fireplace 
Um, <laughs> well, first of all, he's wearing that goofy Klingon makeup. So how, how the heck, you know, um, but he's an actor and he's playing a part. Uh, but I have no recollection of that, of that show. None. It's so that is, you'd have to ask Tony what, how that, that was. That was like, that is, that is ghastly. If, if I get Tony, I, I will. But that's actually funny because, you, you know, we as, as viewers, as fans, we're, you know, we're sitting in the room going like, oh, I can tell you what season that was, what episode that was. I could possibly even tell you what scene that was. Again, parents are concerned. Um, but then on the production side of things, not that, you know, one episode is more or less important than the other, but I'm sure because it's like you were describing earlier, running to get everything done. You know, and you get this with the actors as well. It's like, what was the name of the episode? Oh, I do remember that. So we just have an example of this here. Sons of Moog. Yep. Great episode. You know, good fun and everything. Um, so are there, obviously the visitor being one of them, but are there big episodes? And maybe if we now look into, say, Voyager as well, that stand out for you. They're like, oh, yes, no, I remember that one. The show's. My favorite episodes to direct were where we, want, we weren't stuck on the ship. We were either going to an alternate reality, we were on the holodeck or whatever. Um, my favorite Voyager episode, uh, you have to help me with the name of it. It's the one uh, where we fight World War II. Uh, killing Game. One, the Killing Game. That is my favorite and one of my favorite episodes of all. Uh, it starts off with Kate... Uh, fighting a Klingon as a Klingon and she's fabulous and 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 Dennis Madelon staged a great stunt scene and then I got to shoot World War II and and I got to shoot Jerry Ryan um, being a torch singer in a French uh, cafe during World War II and she is stunningly beautiful and has this great voice when when I got the script uh, I, I asked the, the producer, I said, when are you going to record, uh, pre-record Jerry uh, singing the songs? And they said, oh, we're going to have, uh, uh, we're having somebody else record the songs. I said, what? Are you out of your mind? I had known that she did musical theater in school and stuff. And I said, you're not going to have her sing the songs? And she said, oh, okay, well, maybe we can audition her or ask her if she wants to do it. Can you imagine if she hadn't sung those songs? That would have been that would have been an abomination. But I did two of the, my favorite shot probably of all Star Trek, of all the sixty-two episodes that I directed, was the shot in in uh, the Killing Game Part One, uh, where it it does it it starts on the piano and comes up to her, and then she walks around and it reveals Kate, and we see the whole cafe and stuff. It's a huge big steady cam shot and it really sells everything and and uh jerry is unbelievable in it i and i got to shoot on the back lot at universal uh we shot on uh european street and mm -hmm. day and night and uh, all that stuff and and we got to use uh, uh roxanne we got to show her pregnancy uh yeah, they wrote yeah. that into the script so that was fun that that part about the the kid and how she's uses it dramatically and uh, Neelix gets shot on his bike riding around on the back lot. All of the all of those physical elements uh, were so much fun. You know, to get to get off the stupid get off the sound stage and off the ship and be able to do to do more stuff.
as Rick Berman said, when I told him I was quitting as a producer, um, he said, you just want to go off and wreck something, uh, which, <laughs> which, is, which is true. At some point, you want to just break out and shoot. Uh, well, well, then, if, if you don't, if I might ask you about that, it, like, what was the decision process into stepping away from producing and just moving into directing? My first season on The Next Generation as a production manager, I was going to quit at Christmas because I didn't want to do episodic television. I had mainly been doing movies of the week. And that's what I did for Star Trek. I did movies of the week and pilots. And I did the pilot. And I, and I said to myself, I'm going to stick through Christmas to get the, the show rolling. So I told him, I said, I'm, I'm leaving at Christmas. And they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. They gave me an above the line, better credit. No, no longer below the line. Now I'm above the line. So I have a better credit, less work to do, and more money. So no brainer. Yeah, it's a bit good one, yeah. And I did that for about eight years. Uh, and I finally, one day I said, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. I, I, I don't wanna do one more pattern budget. I, I was so bored. Most, I, I mean, I would pray when Rick would give me an episode. I just wait and wait and wait. And the rest of the time, the shows were running on automatic. And this was, this was now Voyager, uh, going on at the same time as Deep Space Nine. And I just, I, I was just champing at the bit. And uh, I, made this, I made the decision that I had, to, I had to move on. So that was it, I was just bored. I mean, fair, I mean, anything after eight years, you kind of go like, what's, what's left that hasn't already been done in terms of experience? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I also felt that I wasn't, this is, this is a weird in a way, but I wasn't contributing anything. I wanted to, I wanted to be in the trenches and I, I just felt like I was kind of on the outside. The only time I was in the trenches when I was directing. And Rick so graciously told me that he was still gonna have me on as a director uh, once I left as a producer. And he did, and he kept, kept me on through Voyager and then on to, uh, on to Enterprise. So I'm most grateful to him. He, um, I owe him a huge debt of gratitude. That is, that is he doesn't fantastic. Enough, he doesn't get enough credit. Rick Berman gets a lot of, has gotten bad press from the fans and stuff. And, and he does not deserve it because this is a man that kept this thing going, kept it together and produced four successful, well, three and a half successful television series three which ran their full length and one that should have run its full seven years. Yeah, it is. And feature film. And how many features? What, what are you, four? Yeah. Four feet. Yeah, exactly. Because from, I think, actually, I think I saw, um, is it, I think, is it Undiscovered Country is the only production that from his, from starting on Star Trek that he wasn't involved in. But that's because it was the old guard. I say the old guard, but you know you had the team that was established. But like so, generations, first contact, insurrection, and nemesis. Um, it's right. all Rick Berman as producer. Right. Yeah. Um, it's uh, to, actually I suppose to to address it. Yes, I have seen I have seen what you're talking about in you know the 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 press about Rick Berman over the last few years. But I will also say is that some of the people that we've spoken to on this pod, you know, from behind the scenes 
they do again say the same thing about how rick kept things moving rick kept things going um and i, I suppose it it speaks to you know it, it does speak to a person's character if 30 well 20 years on from the end of enterprise we still have people like yourself saying well he was he was a, a great he was great in what he did he was great in keeping the show going and and he was respectful uh to gene's vision even mm -hmm. though on his desk you know what he had on his desk though. he had a little bust of gene roddenberry and he tied a little uh i think it was a green ribbon around his eyes so he was acknowledging Gene on his desk, but he didn't want Gene to necessarily see what was going on. Fair, you know. I thought that was kind of it in a nutshell. Um, it's funny actually because of, of course the amount of times people have said, you know, this would be, you know, Gene wouldn't like this or Gene wouldn't like that. Um, I think of of the shows up until otherwise, I think Deep Space Nine gets that reputation a lot now. I, don't think this will be a shock to you. DS9 is my favorite uh, iteration of Trek. Uh, but I think it, DS9 is very like the original series in a way. You know, it, it, it pushed the boundaries. It did. And it's also not a Star Trek show. It's a, sto it's a story. It's about people. It, it's like a Bunuel uh, exterminating angel. People are stuck in a, you know, they're all stuck together and it's dysfunctional and everybody hates everyone one another and everybody loves one another at the same time, the same person they hate and love. That's the magic of the show. And they're all landlocked. Talk about a science fiction show where nobody can get a, get out. I mean, Ira, Ira later on did all that stuff with going off and doing all that space stuff. And I, I didn't really latch onto that. I just love the dynamic of, of these people being forced to have to deal with one another and they're trapped, and there's nowhere to go. That was the magic of the show. Absolutely. Um, and, and 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 the greatest uh, ex uh, uh, example of humanity of the human character was represented in one of those characters, and that would be the Ferengi. We are we are the Ferengi. You know, Armin. I love Armin. He he is the one of the great human beings. But aren't the Ferengis the best and the worst of us? Oh my God, yes. Like, yes. Um, uh, like, and actually, the Ferengi, because we spoke just before recording, and so I have to get this off me again. The Ferengi are wonderful. The Ferengi are great. So you tortured Max Grodenchek, uh during the, uh, you know, in the Nagus. Oh, it was the Nagus, wasn't it? Where, uh, you know, he had to make a sacrifice, shall we say. Yeah, when in the Nagus, uh, they have a big banquet for the for the Nagus, and everybody's eating this odd Ferengi food. And one of them was this sea cre uh, uh, crustacean that was really nasty. Uh, it was supposed to, we we I think we defined it as a cockroach, but it was this horribly smelling thing that somebody got from pulled out of the ocean, and it had a, a hard shell on it, and and it had tentacles and everything coming out of it, and. I had Max eat them, and and it was so disgusting that people, when he would during the scene, they would turn away because they couldn't watch him. You would laugh and cry at the same time, and we had to have a spit bucket right next to him because as soon as the take was over, he would spit and retch into this into this spit can. But he did tie take and tie, uh, take 
over and over again. I mean, he's the most giving actor. And he had to do it with those screwy teeth, trying to chomp on these on this horrible thing, that this crustacean. Uh, what a giving actor. Frangies are all giving actors. Max, um, Armin, <laughs> on the Nagus, Armin had a really bad cold. And if you've seen the makeup closely, you'll notice that he has his big nose piece on. And if you look in it, you can't really see any holes in the bottom of the nose piece. Well, if you have a cold and your nose is running. Oh no. Locked into this prosthesis and there's nowhere for the snot to run out. <laughs> it would collect at the bottom of the mask. So, so at lunch, Michael Westmore had to drill holes in the bottom of the mask to drain out all of the, uh, the nasal drippings from Armin. And Armin never said a word, never a peep about it. I mean, that's an actor. Talk about. Oh my God. Talk about suffering for your craft. Exactly. And, and he, had a, he had a horrible cold through the whole thing. And he was just wonderful as the Nagus. Oh, that is, that is wonderful. And actually, um, as of the recording of this, just a couple of weeks ago, he has returned to Star Trek. He, he made a, a guest appearance in Star Trek Lower Decks as Quark again. Oh, That's great. Wonderful. I've, yeah, I've heard a lot of the, uh, I think, uh, didn't Kate do one as well? Kate is doing Star Trek Prodigy. Yeah. Oh, Prodigy, so, excuse me. Prodigy, mm. right. Yeah, I get these, I get these confused. Uh, they're, they're in, in person. We, we, we often make this joke that you know, in the time that you and I have been speaking this evening, five more Star Trek series have just been greenlit and they're going into production because there's so much Trek on at the moment. We've got Strange New Worlds, Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks and Prodigy. And there's at least two more in the offing. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. I am so privileged to have been a part of this of this world. It's it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Um. You directed some of the biggest Borg stories uh, in in Trek history, specifically uh, Scorpion, um, which is I think many people will say that that will be up the top when it comes to discussing, you know, Borg episodes overall, uh, but also Regeneration in Enterprise, which is probably one of my favorite episodes of Enterprise overall. And arguably my favorite Borg episode. Regeneration is which one? So that's is that? the, that's the Enterprise. So the only time the Borg appear in Enterprise. Um, right. So uh, we go back. It's it's sort of like a sequel to First Contact in a way. There's a an Arctic expedition. They discover a frozen Borg, and then Bonnie Federici uh, is in that. John Billingsley's wife. She is. In, she is indeed. Yes, she makes a fine drone. And she gets Borgified, and I end up uh, killing her. Or Scott Bakula ends up shooting her. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's that cool. I remember uh, that one. I'm, I love the Borg. I and, and that so I want so how so the Borg I, I suppose obviously up there with you know the Klingons Romans are like the most immediately recognizable Star Trek villain, probably outside of Khan, um, but with Scorpion. Or possibly there was, I know there was Unity before that. I'm thinking we did, we made the change to the movie version of the Borg. Uh, First Contact had come out. Uh, it had obviously been a big success. 
the board were absolutely terrifying in first contact. Um, what did you feel the pressure of? Oh God, the board here we go. Here we go. The board are in Voyager. Let's let's hit the ground running. Because Scorpion is a hell of an episode. Well, the, to me, the Borg are the greatest nemesis of all in Star Trek. And uh, again, it's in the writing. All you have to do is shoot it and it's going to happen. Um, Maurice Hurley, who was an, uh, one of the producers, uh, he came up with the Borg and he's kind of an unsung hero again, where he came up with the concept. Uh, but what a, what a great... Uh, uh, what a what a great nemesis to have. Um, but yeah, ask about Scorpion. It's uh, it's it's just again, it, it's so fun to direct when everything is so intense and you have such a powerful presence there um, that that is driving the story. And all you have to do is figure out how to keep that power going visually and emotionally. Um, so it it again, it's in the writing. If you read the you gotta you gotta read the script, and if you read it really carefully and you get to the kernel of it, you can find how to shoot it. Was there a what what was the challenge like? Because I know species eight four seven two, I think were one of the first completely CGI uh characters introduced in starting. So as a director, I'm presuming like okay. Garrett Wong, I need you to pretend that wall has just exploded there. Does that, I, does that change things? You've been doing things a certain way up to this point. How big of a change is that? At that point, uh, digital vi video uh, visual effects had not progressed to the point that they are now. So there was a lot of limitations put on directors about what we could do with the camera and how many cuts we could have, et cetera, et cetera. So I was not a fan of working with uh, non-existent villains or whatever, because I, I couldn't do everything that I wanted to do. And I felt handcuffed by the financial and technical limitations. Um, but you still had to have the actors know what they were going to react to. And it's their job to find the terror and all that kind of stuff. So. Uh, you know, I, 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 all I can tell them is that it's, it's, it's this scary thing. And I don't even know if we had sketches to be able to even tell, you know, show them. And I don't know how important that would be for the actor at all anyway. I think, you know, maybe, maybe the actor just has to think about a, a kid or beat him up in grammar school or something to be terrified. <laughs> you know, they draw, they draw on their own stuff rather than what the, what the audience is going to see. Um. Oh, you mentioned tension there. Scorpion is tense. It, it is. I like. There's so many episodes where you, you watch them on first view, and you're like, "I'm not sure everyone's coming home from this one. Uh, this is that they, they might lose this one." Um, and of course, I believe it is. So this is the end of the third year on Voyager, and there is that whole, you know, is Garrett Wong going to go or is Jennifer Lean going to go? Uh, did that? play into any of the, any any of what was going on on the set um there was a because obviously jerry ryan was coming in nothing to do with jerry ryan of course but the character of seven of nine was coming in um and you know as the episode closes for all we know harry's about to get eaten alive yeah um well as you know jennifer uh left the show uh, mm. 
I liked her a lot. I thought she was a terrific actress. Her character of Kess was this little mealy mouth nothing. And I thought the writers did her a disservice because of that. And that affected her presence on the show, among other things. Um, but I did an episode called Warlord with her. Yes. Which yes. to me was one of the most intense performances that I had directed. She gave everything and she scared the you know what out of me because this little tiny thing who was so meek and she's that way in real life. She's so soft-spoken and, and you know demure. And she just took the bull by the horns. And that, that character that she played, I think that was really her, something about inside of her that she drew on. Um, so I was sad to see her go, because I, I, again, I thought the writers did her a disservice and that, that they could have done so much more with that, with that character. Um, Harry Kim, the same way, uh, Garrett was terribly underwritten for, for the series. They couldn't figure out what to do with him. Uh, I even killed him in one episode and they brought back another Harry. So the Harry that you saw wasn't really Harry. He was a different guy because my Harry got sucked out an airlock. Um, yeah, th those two characters were, were uh, they were done a disservice by the writers, I think. I, I would have to agree. Um, I love a lot of Harry Kim in the later seasons. I love a lot of Kess. Uh, but I think what had worked so well on The Next Generation with the ensemble, and I think was mastered on Deep Space Nine with the ensemble, um, I don't think worked as well. Uh, or maybe the balance just wasn't there on Voyager because there was obviously the stronger characters in terms of story as well as everything else, particularly obviously uh, Captain Janeway, the Doctor, Seven, um, and then I would say Tom Paris as well. And sometimes, not every episode, of course, there's loads of great Tuvok episodes, there's great Chakotay episodes, there's great Harry Kim episodes. Um, and there's even great Neelix episodes. Poor old Ethan Phillips. I love Ethan Phillips. He just seems like the nicest man. He is. Indeed. Uh, but that, that was the problem with, with Voyager. <laughs> it started off that, that uh, you were going to have people on board the ship who were in conflict. You had the McKee versus um, the Federation people. Never paid it off. Um, Chakotay, I don't know... The, the writers did not fulfill their obligation to have that conflict. Chakotay and Janeway should have been at loggerheads and they could have been lovers, but they, they had to hate what each of them stood for and how they approached the problems. To me, it would have made Voyager much, much more interesting. They, 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 never, they never paid that off. And again, that, I think that was to the detriment of, of, of the show. And that the, they clearly knew they had to do something to fix some of these issues. And that's why Jerry Ryan showed up because mm -hmm. sex sells. I, I, yeah, I mean, you're, you're dead right. I suppose I was going to say, like, to be fair, I don't think a secret was ever made of it. Um, and Jerry, thank God, is as good as she is as an actor. Um, I mean, you, you only need to look at some of the episodes. Uh, one stands as the episode just one where it's just her and the doctor for the episode she is incredible she's just absolutely brilliant 
Um, so even if the character was created for the idea of sex cells, fantastic actor takes on the role, which is fun. You know, fantastic, which is fantastic. How many times can you say fantastic? She's a terrific actress and incredibly intelligent. She's actually an intellectual. I remember on the set, she would be reading these arcane uh, novels about stuff that she'd explain the plot. And I wouldn't know, uh, you know, it's, it, th let me put it this way. All the books she was reading would never make the New York Times bestseller list. And that's all I read. I just read mysteries from the New York Times bestseller list. But she is actually an intellectual uh, and, and profoundly intelligent. And it, it shows through in the character. And sometimes it's hard to get past the look to say, <laughs> okay, what else is there? But uh, clearly, yeah, sure, clearly she has the chops. Absolutely. And again, uh, Star Trek Picard, um, she is one of the easily most popular characters, um, which was, in hindsight, completely obvious. Yeah, of course she was. She's a brilliant character. She's a brilliant actor. Um, I think at the time, if we'd said, all right, who's going to be the one that comes back uh, in 20 years or something, probably would have been thinking, oh, yeah, maybe Belana Torres or, you know, obviously Janeway, but she's going to get her own spin off or, you know, kind of like seven. Absolutely no seven. Come on. That's a, that's a no brainer. Um, it's a, it, And it'll be interesting now on Prodigy. So we have Kate Mulgrew plays. She's in every episode. We know Robert Beltran has at least filmed or filmed, uh, recorded um, a guest role. Um, so it'd be interesting now to see what they do. Because we're all, you know, I'm going to speak for the entire fandom here. We all want to know what happened when Voyager got home. That's what we're, we're dying to see. We want to say, all right, well, you know, day two, you know, ah, oh, yeah, oh, wait, no, I can just walk over there. You know, I, I'm not trapped on the one ship. Um, you direct an episode 1159, which uh, is set in the 21st century. Um, you've got Kate McGrew playing Shannon O'Donnell. Uh, and I loved this episode because we weren't on the ship anymore. And I love Voyager. I love the sets. But everyone was being... Yeah, that's me too. I told you that earlier. I got yeah. off the ship. I was not shooting a Star Trek episode. I was shooting a story about a woman reaching. And, and Kate was not playing Janeway. She was playing a different character. Ultimately, it was the same genealogy and the same kind of drive but it wasn't Janeway. Mm. Uh, so that that made it really interesting. And I, I got to shoot on the back lot and have snow uh, during the winter and had a great uh, two-story bookstore uh, book to shoot in. And uh, again, not Star Trek, something different. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you liked it because it's, um, because it's not Star Trek. I, I do because I, I like it. I will always go where the story is. Uh, and that is a great story behind that episode, I mean, as so many of them do, but that is, it's almost a two-hander. Obviously there's more, there's a bit going on in the episode, but it's between herself, it's between, um, I'm afraid the actor's name fails me for the moment, but Henry Janeway. Um, and I just think it works. It just really, really works. Um, and it's, it always feels like a gamble because there's no warp cores, not, there's no photon torpedoes exploding outside the window. Um, it's just a story about two characters. And I think it's something that Star Trek 
considering it's a sci-fi series, does so well when you step away, when you step away from things like that. Yeah, that's interesting how you say that because while I would rail against doing those kinds of shows, I had an affinity for them because it's very interesting to see actors just do their thing and have have a relationship with another character. Um, I did an enterprise thing with um, uh, Connor and Dominic where they're they're on a shuttle for and you think they're going to die and how and they're they're like uh, you know they have a certain amount of tension between the two and how are they going to deal with it these two disparate personalities and and again um, uh, that was a really interesting episode to do because of because of the relationship and Rick wrote it so I better do a good job on it he actually complimented me on. He did compliment me. Compliment me on that. That was a very difficult episode to shoot because you're trapped inside this little shuttle pod. At at lunch, I had the uh, art. I had the art department come down and I asked Herman Zimmerman. I said, "I need to cut the set in half." And he says, "You can't cut the set in half. There's a big metal beam that holds the whole thing together." I said, "I need to cut the set in half." So I said, "Okay, I'll call Tommy Arp, the construction coordinator." He had him come down. He said, David wants to cut the set in half so he can put the camera on each side. And he says, okay, I'll do that at lunch. <laughs> so he brought the crew in and they cut through the metal to separate the, separate the shuttle. But those two-handed scenes, uh, I'm glad that you respond to those because as a director, I did too, because it's a real challenge to how do you keep the momentum going and how do you make it visually compelling and and keep the energy going and, and that whatever that is that's, that's happening. There has to be conflict. If there's no conflict, then it's boring. I sold one other script story idea to Star Trek, which was never produced. And that was another two-handed scene. It was Data and Mrs. Troy trapped in a, in a runabout or shuttle or whatever they were called. And they, again, had to figure a way to survive and Data's driving her crazy because he's Data and she's just, you know, her head's ready to explode because she has to deal with this, this android guy. Um, so they bought that story, but they could never figure a way to make it into an episode. I thought it would have been hilarious. It would have been- In theory, fun. yeah, it sounds, it sounds brilliant. But it didn't happen. Oh, um, yeah, you've been, so you've been so generous with your time. I, I won't keep it too much longer because I could sit here and ask you about what about this episode, what about this episode all night. Um, I do want to definitely, um, I just want to go into a little bit more about, um, regeneration just really quickly, um, because I think that I, I often credit that episode as where Voyager used the Borg a lot, um, uh, obviously with Seven of Nine in it as well, the, the frightening edge of the Borg tended to, I think, wane a little bit toward the end of Voyager regeneration is terrifying regeneration this is the borg they are unstoppable i mean it feels like the enterprise or enterprise only survives accidentally um and obviously again as we saw a lot of that is in the in the writing but it's shot in quite a bloody scary way thank you i don't remember a lot about the episode <laughs> <laughs> You have to give me an example. I I I just don't remember a lot of it. Um, 
Okay, what well, one example is say Flox is looking after the uh, the patients in in sick bay, and then from them waking up to they they get they get blown out an airlock or something. It is it the camera follows them. They're you know straight up ladders. They're into the Jeffrey's tubes. They're calling through everything. In the in the meantime, you've got you know the your security officers. They're firing their face pistols. Of course, just bouncing off them and everything. And and really that in combination as well with Brian Tyler's unbelievable score for that episode, I just thought like this is an interesting way that they're going to end Enterprise. Everyone just gets assimilated, and that's the end of it. Okay, that's that's a bold strategy. Yeah, I do remember some of those shots of shooting in the Jeffries tube, and and as you mentioned the ladder and stuff. You have such little space to work in, and so uh, a little. Uh, why you can't shoot wide because there's nothing there it's just plywood and and the stage floor and stuff so again you want to make it as intimate and claustrophobic and stuff and and so i i like you talking about how that that energy was there because it was a challenge to be able to to shoot it i even tried remember trying to do a dolly shot down the uh down the jeffries tube uh you know it's all it's all prestidigitation the audience only believes what you show them. You know, you don't you don't show them what's behind you. <laughs> if you do, it kind of kind of breaks the fourth wall. the The willing suspension of disbelief is uh, no longer holding. It's a, it's something as well that time and again here on this pod we we use the phrase what we see as only is we see the finished product. We see it's been through the edits, it's been through special effects, everything. Um, and it, you know, it's so different when, you know, someone's dangling you by your ankles as you try and capture the shot as you're going up, uh, up, up a ladder. Um, and then as an audience, we're just like, oh, I wish I was there. That sounds like that was so much fun and nobody ever lost their temper and nobody was ever tired or grumpy. And, you know, because they're working on a Star Trek show. It's amazing. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> Examples, David. Examples. No. Um, but... That is that is incredible. Now, before we before we go, I've got more things to ask you. I've one question I'll save to the end, but I did want to ask you about your post Star Trek career. Um, am I right saying is so for the benefit of the listeners, uh, you're sitting in front of a beautiful image of the Hollywood sign behind you. Is that one of your own? Yes, it is. I I live in a, a community called Beechwood Canyon, and it's actually uh, referred to as Hollywood Land. Um, the Hollywood sign used to say Hollywood land, and mm. it was an advertisement for a housing development up in the Hollywood Hills. And I actually live in one of the original Hollywood land homes that was built in 1923. So I have made, I've had exhibits of the Hollywood sign. I've photographed it maybe 10,000 times. Uh, last week, I just, I, I worked for the Hollywood sign trust as a photographer. I just photographed them, uh, um, repainting the sign for, it's my third time photographing it for uh, being repainted. Uh, I, I shot, uh, we did a projection on the film, on the uh, sign during, uh, when the Rams won the Super Bowl, they, they did a whole projection system. Uh, I mean, we covered the sign with some tarp that said Rams house, I shot that. I shot something for uh, BET awards that we, we did projections on the sign. I do a lot of stuff for the sign, and it's one of my passions. And the sign is the most famous, the most famous nine letters in the world, and everybody knows it. 
And the pilgrimage that you see of people coming up my house, because if you continue up my house, it takes you right up to the sign of Beechwood, Can of Beechwood Drive. It's a pil it's, as I said, it's a pilgrimage. It's, it's a, uh, something to aspire to, it's a dream. People see it and it gives them this whole thought about possibility and about, uh, about aspiring to a dream. Uh, which is pretty amazing. I ask so many people why they want to come and see it. And, and they, they make those same kind of comments because it's about, it's about the Hollywood mystique and magic and, and the dream machine. So that's, that's my Hollywood sign thing as a photographer. I'm also a photographer. Uh, I work as a freelance photographer for Getty Images and I shoot uh, entertainment. I do a lot of red carpet. I have... Uh, uh, almost 400,000 images on the Getty site. So I've shot a lot of celebrities over the years, but that's that's what I do now. That's incredible. I can just imagine, you know, one day when I'm receiving my Oscar, uh, I can just imagine looking up and, you know, there's, but why is David Livingston taking a picture of me? We should be taking a picture of him. You know, he's a celebrity. He's the special one. Absolutely, no question. Yeah. <laughs> um. David, so I have one last question to ask you. Before I do that, I just want to say thank you so much for what has been a wonderful, wonderful chat. This has just been incredible. It's a real treat. Thank you so much. Well, you certainly have an incredible uh, base of knowledge and uh, your enthusiasm is infectious. So oh. it, it's a prevalent. I, I just feel like I'm, you're, we're just sitting in the room and chewing the fat. So it's, it's, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so here's my, my, my last question. Simple question. Doesn't even require any thought. Um, what does Star Trek mean to you? Uh, income. Uh, I, I am blessed with something called residuals. And having directed the amount of episodes that I did, they keep... I mean, Star Trek is the Energizer Bunny. They keep playing these episodes. If I worked on any other show, I'd be getting, you know, one penny. I got a, I got a check on my wall over here. It's for one penny for a residual on some show I did. That's not the case with Star Trek. It's it just it's the gift that keeps on giving. But that's sort of a facetious answer. Hmm. Uh, what it really is is about having involved been involved with the community of people that I have enjoyed the company of. And I didn't used to do a lot of these podcasts in the past and go to conventions and whatever. And my wife said, David, you really should become more involved in this community. And so I have been, and it is such a delight to go to the conventions and to do these podcasts and to reconnect with, with all of these wonderful actors and behind the scenes people that we all spend so much time together. So that's the gift. It's the gift of the people that I was able to be involved with. And the show is about something. A lot of stuff that we work on doesn't have, isn't grounded in, in something that's putting out positive vibes. And, and Star Trek does that. I mean, it's a little pretentious, but um, it, it means something and it's about the positive uh, aspect of humanity. And that gives me a sense of pride that I, I was able to participate in a show 
that had such an impact on people in a, in a positive way. I mean, look at, look at what you're doing here. Um, and, and there's, there's such a community out there that does that. So I am grateful to Star Trek for giving me that opportunity. And even though it's 20, 30 years later, I'm now trying to re-involve myself more in that community because it, it's a gift and I shouldn't walk away from that gift. Um, it is, uh, I can tell you personally how grateful I am that you are um, becoming such a part of the community again, because I've been 62 episodes directing and, uh, you know, almost, what, at least, almost 20 years producing um or 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 thereabouts i mean you are you are as much a part of the furniture of star trek as the captain's chair is well i don't know about that i'm certainly a cog in the wheel and i'm grateful for all the opportunities i was given and uh, uh yeah i of all my show business experiences nothing holds a candle to star trek now actually i have just remembered this one thing um can, before we go, can you tell me about Trek Talks in January? Yeah, yeah. Trek Talks. Uh, I am on the board of directors of the Hollywood Food Coalition, which uh, provides a nightly meal to the homeless in Hollywood, as well as acting as a major food distribution. We take uh, we take in food from uh, 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 donors, and then we distribute it to not only our own uh, uh, people but to uh, organizations all around uh, Southern California. Um, and I'm on the board of directors along with John Billingsley, Fox uh, from, uh, from Enterprise. And last year we had a, um, a, 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 a program uh, uh, on Zoom uh, and YouTube called uh, Trek Talks in which we had an unbelievable group of, of actors and behind the scenes people. And all of the actors that we asked to participate, every one of them uh, agreed and everyone up, ended up appearing, which on these kinds of things, that's extraordinary. Some even, um, uh, uh, Garrett, for instance, was in his car going somewhere and he, he's, he, he zoomed in from his car as he was driving. I don't know how safe it was, but we had this unbelievable response. And it was eight hours and we're gonna do the same thing in January. Uh, you can Google uh, Trek Talks. It's going to be Trek called Trek Talks 2. We're going to have great panels. We're going to have uh, entertainment. Uh, we're going to have interstitial uh, videos. Uh, it's going to be a blast. And I hope and desire that anybody listening to this will, uh, will give us a look. See, in the meantime, you can check on YouTube under uh, Trek Talks and, and get an example of what uh, last year's uh, program uh, was like. So please, please join us if you can. Brilliant. And what I'll do as well is I will put the, the link to the YouTube channel in the description of this video so that people can just link, just hit the link and go take them straight there. That would be fabulous. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. And it's for, it's for a great cause. Some of the actors also bring in their own uh, uh, particular charities. Um, uh, uh, Jonathan Frakes and, and uh, Armin and Kitty, uh, Kitty had uh, um, pancreatic cancer and Jonathan's brother died of pancreatic cancer and they were both able to talk about PanCam uh, on Trek Talks and we encourage all the actors and anybody else who's interested to also advocate for their particular charity. So it's not only the Hollywood Food Coalition but it's also 
uh, talking about uh, other charities of interest. And that's what trectivism is about. It's about saying to the Trek community, look, if you're committed to Gene's vision, then here's your opportunity to do something. And that's what trectivism is, is, is take that feeling and, and put it out there and, and, and help your community or wherever you feel there's a need. And the satisfaction that you get back by doing that is so tremendous that you're able, uh, able to help those in need or, or to provide uh, whatever to, to whatever charity uh, you're interested in. So trectivism, go for it. Go for it, Trekkies. It's a, it's a great way to express your love and affection for, for Star Trek. That is perfect. And I can think of no better note to, to end on. So, David, thank you so much again. Uh, I so, so much appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Sean, you've been great. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity and uh, live long and prosper. Thank you very much to everyone listening. Uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you very much for listening along. I'm sure you have enjoyed the episode as much as I have. Uh, we will, of course, be back next week. And in the meantime, David, you took the words right out of my mouth. Live long and prosper.